We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host Nick Pilato. And we decided today was a good day, a better day than ever, to do a little Giants pre-draft mailbag. It may be one of, well, this will be one of two. It'll be a two-part mailbag, but we may also do another pre-draft mailbag as the draft gets a little closer. But there's been a lot of questions. There's been a lot of speculation. There's been a lot of Giants chatter. So we figured now's the time better than ever to answer some questions, and talk a little deeper on the Giants. So before we do that, today again will be a two-part draft mailbag, part one, this one, and then part two coming in the coming days. Nick, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing really well. It's really windy outside, so the audience might hear some gusting winds, but I'll try to mute my microphone from time to time so it doesn't kind of go over when you're talking. Well, it's like the first nice day out in New Jersey in a while. It's like 70 and sunny today. Haven't had a chance to get outside much, but do plan on playing some tennis later on tonight at 8.30. Found a pickup basketball game last night around me in Morristown in Mendham, actually. A friend of mine who lives in Mendham. Pretty fun, awesome experience. So basically, we have a middle school in Mendham. Rent out, you rent out the middle school gym. They're gonna be. It's gonna be Mondays and Thursday nights. Good group of guys, like 14, 15 guys. No one really that dominant. No, no, no great shooters. A lot of size on the court. I was definitely one of the smaller players, but did find a way to box out a bunch and make some really tough rebounds. And even after I couldn't shoot at first, because it's the first time I picked up a basketball in six years after playing pretty regularly when I used to live in the city um, and in Astoria. I was able to hit a key clutch shot down the stretch, which made me feel really good. Top of the key, a little behind, a little foul line extended jumper. Uh, and one of the games that helped us win the game, actually, in a game we won by one point to stay on the court. So you know what, Nick? Everything's good in my world right now. Finding a pickup basketball game around you is like one of the best things you can find. I absolutely agree. I wish I had somebody to play some pickup basketball with over here. But hey, it is what it is. Without a doubt. All right, let's dive into some draft mailbag. And I wanted to start with 
arguably the longest question we've ever been asked on the Big Blue Banter podcast from buddy of ours and follower, longtime follower, listener, Max, who, you know, it's so long he couldn't even fit it in one tweet. I don't even think he could have fit this in like 11 tweets. It's that long. So I want to dive into all that and I'm going to read it off and then we can dive a little further into that. So Max says, well, first he finds it. First, he gives us a nice little compliment at first. We can leave that out. But he says, some folks, even you, I think, he says, have Jermaine Johnson ahead of Trayvon Walker. Help me understand why. I watch Johnson and even Hutchinson to agree, and I see a guy who looks maxed out production-wise. Or, sorry, production-wise, it was nice, and I think he's going to be a fine player. But I don't see a guy who's going to develop into much more physically or tactically at the next level. We know he's a little older. I do believe in breakout age. By the way, I do as well. Uh, but in a class at, that objectively doesn't have a lot of elite talent, why not take a big swing on big upside like Walker? We know you love elite traits, and Walker's floor is also decent. Can step right in on early downs and drop in space. Your Giants are not playing for 22 any, anyway. He can get you seven to nine sacks off the edge. You love to have that ascent production going into year three. Seems like people are wary of him from a percept from the perception he's jumping up boards because of his combine. In reality, he was named buzzing around draft coverage long before. I believe I believe uh, Brugler and Jeremiah had him in their top ten back in February. You look at a lot of the ball of Clay Tracy types that fall or that fail, and it's oftentimes because of character flags. You mentioned Greg Robinson this week. Dare I say DeAndre Baker, too. But by all accounts, Walker got his act together, loves football, his dad is an ex-Marine, etc. Lastly, Ojolari led the SEC in sacks with like 13 and a half in his final year. Micah Parsons was an off-ball linebacker. One of them is a very solid number two edge taken in the second round, and one of them is an elite edge, the likes of which we probably have not seen. Traits plus hard work plus scheme, and I'm taking the ceiling over floor every time. Am I crazy? Absolutely not. No, you are not crazy. And I think this is the argument between Trayvon Walker and Jermaine Johnson. And I have Jermaine Johnson ranked higher than Trayvon Walker. I, I would like to get your opinion on this too, Dan, just because he is more refined. So it kind of goes to your point that he's more quote unquote maxed out. But at the same time, the traits that Jermaine Johnson possesses right now translate very well to the NFL. All the athletic ability and all the potential of Trayvon Walker translates well to the NFL, but it's still just that. And we said this a couple of podcasts ago, it's still just potential. It hasn't been proven on the field. This is somebody who converted a very, very low percentage of their pressures into sacks. This is somebody whose production is very, very low. And I get it. He played in a more team-oriented defense down there at Georgia, and they didn't maybe maximize his ability to create sacks because they were opening up pass rushing lanes for Quay Walker, Nakobe Dean, Channing Tindall, and a bunch of other things like that. But this is a classic argument between somebody who is very skilled already, somebody who has production, at least one year of it, because he did play in that Georgia system before he was at Florida State, and then somebody who didn't produce but has all the potential in the world. I don't think you can necessarily go wrong here, and I think you are correct. If you want to swing for the fences, you swing for Trayvon Walker. But if you want to go with a Jermaine Johnson, I don't think that's a bad decision either. Yeah, I think I have it pretty similar to you. I'm I'm only a little slightly ahead of Walker and Johnson, and I go back and forth because there are things I really like about what uh, what Johnson's been able to accomplish already, and some of what I see on film, just that alpha mentality on that defense, I think is super important. That competitive nature, that want to be the best, and having actual success in production. But having said that, you know, you look a little deeper. I put a question out on Twitter yesterday, like, 
really besides the advanced age, because Jermaine Johnson of Florida State, by the way, we, we, we want to try to mention player team, uh, team they played for in, in position. So edge, he is an older prospect, obviously going from the Juco route uh, through Georgia and then Florida State. But I said, besides age, what's there not to like? And someone posted a really good stat and, and, and played a good devil's advocate. Jermaine Johnson pressure rate, according to PFF, was not good. Uh, a pressure on a per-snap basis was just not there. It wasn't with the elite guys. It wasn't with the elite guys of the past, like the Chase Youngs, the guys who have been successful. And it wasn't really up to par, even with like late breakout, you know, late um, draft buzz breakouts like Brian Burns, who I, I originally in that class had as a top six guy. A lot of people were talking about him as a back end first. He ends up going in the middle of the first, one of the best picks in that class. He was had he had a much better pressure rate as well at Florida State. So I think there are concerns with that in regards to that as well. Because while the sack production was there for Johnson, it wasn't necessarily the per pass rush pressure rate because he did have a lot of opportunities there versus a guy like Walker who doesn't have the sack production but also doesn't really have the per pressure uh, pass rush rates either. Um, and just purely more, you know, speculative. Uh, I'm sorry, projection. Yeah. I have the rates in front of me if uh, I can read them too. Like Jermaine yeah. Johnson, you're right, man. It's a 14.1%. That ranks 79th in the FBS. Trayvon Walker was 10.1%, ranking 133rd in the FBS. But the interesting thing about Johnson, and I know sacks, they can be a little, I don't want to say fluky, but they're not always going to be consistent year in and year out. I mean, I'm more about pressures. Obviously, you want the guy to finish. But Johnson had a ridiculously high finish sack to pressure rate. He had a 30% sack to pressure rate, which is insane. He had 46 pressures, sacked the quarterback 14 times. Like that is that is some top-level finishing ability in terms of what the analytics would suggest. Yeah, and finishing ability is an underrated trait. It's important. Like You watch the tape, and you see Johnson's ability to kind of close the edge at the top of the pocket, and you're like, okay, that is worth something, his ability to turn these pressures into sack. I don't know how quantifiable it is because it's not like you said, Nick, the sack rates are just not sticky at all compared to pressure rates over time. Really not even close. Like they shouldn't really be viewed in the same prism, but there is something there and it's hard to figure out what, but how do you quantify that ability to finish your pressures? And if so, like, what is that worth? Because a sack is definitely worth more than a pressure if we could quantify this by numbers. But at the same time, we've learned that it's not as sticky year over year. So it's it's tough to figure that out as far as the overall question goes. Again, like after doing a little more digging on kind of Jermaine Johnson's struggles with pressure rate and his age and, you know, just playing in a different conference, I'm okay going Walker over Johnson. I think ultimately neither is going to be the top of my wish list at seven overall because there's going to be other players there like potentially Thibodeau or just Sauce Garner straight up who the Giants could be interested in or trade back. But if it's between Johnson and between Walker with that pick, I, I, I at this point I'm kind of teetering back and forth with, with Johnson having a slight edge for me. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that either, Dan. Like I don't think you're wrong to be quote-unquote flip-flopping, so I don't think it should be viewed that way. I think both of these guys can be good picks for the New York Giants. They both offer different things. And there might be different plans on how to extract and utilize their traits to their best potential. But if the Giants select Trayvon Walker, we're not going to be sitting there on draft day come that Thursday, which is only like two weeks away. It's getting kind of crazy. And be like, what the heck are they doing? We understand why they are doing that. It's just, okay, you need to have a plan to develop this guy. You know what? They're obviously interested in him because they brought him in for a top 30 visit. Yeah, without a doubt. All right, let's get on to the next one here. And that is from Lucas who asks, I'm loving this barrage of episodes. Keep them coming. I got a question for you and Nick. Brandon Bede made some trades in the draft to get Josh Allen. He traded up for Cody Ford 
And he says, I also believe he wanted to trade up for Ed Oliver or maybe it was Epinesa. So Luke is going on memory here, but we respect because I do that sometimes too. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think that's something Shane may also do if he falls in love with a prospect in this class? Maybe at some point, I don't expect it to happen at the top of the draft. Cause I think Joe Shane looks at this roster. He says, I want to get as many kicks at the can as we can have. And that's what he said in the John Schmelk interview as well. I, I think they want to have more plate appearances. If we're going to use baseball references. And I don't think they're necessarily in a position right now to, to trade up early in the draft. Now, Say it's, you know, day three, maybe late day two, possibly. I could see a scenario where they would do that depending on the cost of uh, of who they're going up for. But I don't think it's priority number one. I think they'd rather maybe even trade back. But I'd also have to look at how that's going to affect them economically and where they're going to be come draft days. Bradbury's still on the roster. What's going on with Saquon Barkley? Because all those things should be factored into that decision as well. Yeah, actually, I, I think I have a, a different take on this, Nick. I think that... The Giants will be, under Shane's tenure, more likely to trade up for a player they love than trade back for more picks. I know he said he wants more kicks at the can, but it doesn't exactly follow along the lines of what he learned under Bean or what Bean learned under Dave Gettleman. And obviously, that come, he comes from that management tree. Do you think that's going to happen in this draft, though? Because that's where, how I'm looking at this. I'm yeah, not looking yeah. At- uh, yeah, for me in this draft... I think, and if you listen to what he said today, he said right now they haven't even started considering trading back from set five and seven in an article uh, Paul Schwartz posted, uh, published, I should say, in the New York Post. It was a quote from Shane where I'll get it later on the show because I think there's a question directly about it. But he's basically like, no, we haven't even really started considering trading back from five or seven. We we likely want to try to find two players we really like at five and seven. And he basically said, you know, look, like with the fact that we have so many needs on this roster, you can't really not take best player available. Now I think they have a chance, a good chance of trading up from 36 back into round one. If they love someone we've seen him do it for Cody Ford a little, but in a different range, like he mentioned, this was trading up in round two, but I think there's a, there's at least an outside chance, a better chance of that happening ultimately, even than trading back from seven. I wonder what that would cost to trade back up. I mean, you'd probably part ways with one of those thirds, possibly a pick for next year. Interesting scenario as to, and I wonder who it would be as well. There's so many different things that could happen with that one. And I would say this, the reason why I want to just say, I do think it's more likely also has to do with the fact that they have this limited cap situation for this year. And they have so many draft picks after acquiring the extras from the two extras from the bears and the one extra from the dolphins. So I feel like that plays a role in the potential of them trading up in this class. Absolutely. And if James Bradbury is still on the roster, then that's something that's going to definitely have to be weighed in. Eugene asks, Dan, does the Saints trade signify to you that the Saints are gathering up assets to make a move up to the top of this draft for a quarterback? If so, do they have enough to package for the fifth pick? I am conflicted. If I would do the fifth overall pick for the 16th and 19th, they would have to throw in more assets to make that a deal. And I think they would throw in more assets to make that a deal if they were going to make that a deal. But I'll be honest with you, Eugene. And I'm curious to get Nick's take on this. I have no absolute, I have absolutely no clue why the Saints made that trade because you would think in theory, like it gives you a chance to potentially move up for a quarterback, but even like you said, like no one's going to be jumping at the bit, chomping at the bit to trade five or four or three or two or one for 16 and 19. Like there's going to need to be more assets thrown into that deal. And maybe that makes it more enticing, but you know, you're moving out of blue chip range. When you go from five to 16 or 19 or 16 and 19, you're out of that blue chip range. You're kind of in the range of, we really hope somehow Stingley falls to us, or we really hope somehow Jermaine Johnson falls to us. But once you kind of get past that and those guys go in like 
10 through 16 range, let's say, or 10 through 15 range. I should, I'm sorry. I should say, well, now you're like scrapping because you're like, Oh, well the two, there's like one super steel type blue chip. We had at that position. He's gone. There's another one we had at that position. Now he's gone. So now we're kind of out of that blue chip range. And ultimately is that enough when you're not getting a premium pick in the 2023 draft? Cause you wouldn't in that case, like if you do five for 16 and 19, you're not also getting a premium 2023. You might get a second rounder at best. Uh, um, potentially a third, but second at best. So, you know, for me, with all that said, I don't really know what the Saints are doing, so I don't want to speculate too much there. I'd even be surprised if they're just not taking quarterback and they're just sitting at, at their two first-round picks and taking players there. But I don't think that would be enough for me. No, it wouldn't be enough for me either, not for the E5 pick. And it wouldn't make sense, right? Why would they want to trade next year's one just to possibly trade these two in a package deal? Wouldn't next year's one be a little bit more valuable? I know picks in the in the in this year are typically a more valuable asset, but we don't know what the Saints will finish next year. And the Saints could also view this as, hey, we're still competitive. The NFC isn't all that great. Let's sure up some of the holes that we have on our roster, find a good wide receiver, replace Teron Armstead, and then you know try to compete in the NFC South. Yeah, without a doubt. All right, Doug asks, can you give an overview of the projected best value positions at the New York Giants picks? For example, the top of second round is projected to have value at edge and safety, et cetera, et cetera. Doug here, first round, the value for the Giants will be edge and OT. Second round, for me, the value will be a combination of safety, potentially, but not definitely, interior offensive line, and that includes tackles so I think can convert into the interior offensive line. Not O-tackle, just interior for me there. So safety, interior offensive line. Edge, I do think there's a possibility of some really good values at edge. So those three positions. And then finally, maybe I got my eye on a couple corners and off-ball linebackers for sure. The question is, when it comes to off-ball linebacker, do you want to use a top 36 pick on an off-ball linebacker? And I would say for the third round, it's going to be off-ball linebacker. Safety, I think a, I think a few of these safeties are going to drop just based on the position and the importance of the position and how NFL teams value it and how they draft it. So I would go safety and and um, sorry, safety and what did I say? And receiver, I would say on 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 round th- in round three as well. Round four for me, I actually don't have running backs and tight ends as values at almost any point in this draft. There are a few guys I like at both positions to maybe take a swing on in round four, round five, round six for the running back and tight end position. But I think it's overall one of the weakest running back classes I've seen. I, I usually can find a ton of guys I like at value uh, in this class. For me right now, it's like Damian Pierce, James Cook, and I'm I'm running out of options. Maybe uh, there's guys I haven't studied, but I don't like this class at all at running back compared to last year. And tight ends is the same thing. Like there's guys I like. I like Ferguson. I like uh, the kid from the kid, Austin Allen, the kid from Nebraska is like late round guys. But I think overall, it's a very weak tight end class that, you know, you can push up and then claim his values on round three, but more so I just feel like these are needs for the Giants and they're spending a lot of time evaluating these positions, running back and tight end. Doesn't make necessarily make them values. Like I think the value will still probably be at wide receiver over running back and tight end at every single round of this draft. And I think the value will probably be at safety and corner over maybe not safety because it thins out a bit, but a corner in every round of the draft over running back and tight end and so on and so forth, to be completely honest, based on how I view these running back and tight end positions. I think it's interesting with the running back and tight ends because I look at a couple of tight end options and there are guys that I would be happy with having, say, 
early with one of those fourth round picks, you know, or one of those early day three picks, like a guy like Charlie Kolar, who we've brought up a couple of times on the podcast out of Iowa state, if Cade Otten out of Washington ended up falling, he's not a dynamic receiver, but he's somebody who's going to be a solid blocker for you for a tight end. There's no Gronk in this class. There's no Kyle Pitts in this class. And that's for the running backs. I like those top guys, man. I like Isaiah Spiller. I like Kenneth Walker. I like Brian Robinson. I think Rashad white is a talented kid. Brees Hall, very talented. And then we brought up James Cook, Damian, Pierce, but some of those other guys I just haven't studied quite yet. The Pierre Strongs, I can't find any South Dakota State tape. I've heard good things about Jerry and Ely, the kid from Ole Miss, but I haven't seen it yet. Jerome Ford still got to get to Cincinnati's offense. So I think there could be some running back options, but again, where do you value that position is where it kind of all comes down to. Yeah, and I just, yep, fair enough. All right, Eugene asked, and this is kind of similar to when we would, we've answered, but I'll ask it again because it has a little change in it would you be willing to do 16 to 19 for seven overall we already answered that but is it 2023 2023 first round pick a contingent factor on any giants trade you would make to move out of five or seven it's what i would want personally dan because right now there are what five other teams that have multiple first round picks in next year's draft class where the quarterbacks are reportedly going to be a lot better with Ohio State CJ Stroud and then Bryce Young from Alabama. You got even other guys like Kentucky's Will Levis and a couple other quarterbacks that are already getting hyped up. Granted, it's very, very early as of right now, but I would still want that option because we have no long-term solution right now for the New York Giants at the quarterback position if this team isn't going to commit to Daniel Jones. So I think the more ammo for next year, and as you brought up too, Dan, the fact that Shane is going to be much more stable next year with probably his desired scouting staff. This is still Gettleman holdovers. They may stay on staff, but I feel like next year is going to be a lot more continuity and the front office will have an entire year knowing they're going to be drafting for the Giants, studying and sending guys out to colleges to watch those players, which is not what happened this past year because Gettleman was in charge. So I think next year's draft, having more kicks at the can, having more ammo makes a lot more sense than necessarily this draft where Joe Shane is still new. Yeah, I love that take. I mean, look, he's somebody who's going to have time to put in his full draft process for next year. It wasn't available to Shane for this year. He's working with what he can, but that's dependent on the limited, you know, on the time frame he had since he got hired. And so, yeah, I'm with you, Nick. And to answer your question, Eugene, I do believe that if the Giants are, if they are going to trade out of five or seven, I want them to at minimum get a 2023 first round pick. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. 
That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Yes, I love that. And speaking of the quarterback position, Hakuna Matata asked, there aren't 32 starting caliber quarterbacks in the NFL, but we talk about the need to invest in quarterback two. What's the best way to approach quarterback two? Sign a former starter who wasn't elite, not re-signed, late round pick with upside. What's the earliest you'd consider drafting quarterback two in this draft? Yeah, it's a great question. Quarterback, any quarterback-based questions are, are always great because there's a wide range of answers for them, and I don't think that there's any set definitive way to say what to do at quarterback. I think that's pretty obvious. Otherwise, it wouldn't be taking all these teams so long to find a quarterback. And some of these teams, I mean, some of these franchises, it's been decades now. And so I would answer it like this, how I would approach QB2. How I would approach QB2 is I would sign all of the former first-round picks who fizzle out on their rookie contracts. So some guys that qualify in that range in recent years are uh, Mitchell Trubisky, Marcus Mariota, potentially Baker Mayfield after his rookie contract is over. Um, Sam Darnold, even though it didn't work out, that's the type of, and if you could get him free, these are the type of guys you want to target after they hit the free agent market, not via trades. You don't want to be giving up assets for them, but via the free agent market. These are the guys I would take because we've seen just such a, someone posted the stat and put it on my Twitter yesterday. It's insane how big the bust rate is for second round quarterbacks in the NFL. Someone put out a list. There's like two total outliers and both of them in the last like decade, I think it was. And both of them were like barely outliers. They were like Derek Carr who like, eh, do you really want to pay this guy that kind of money that he's making? And there was one other and, and, and Carr's okay. It's like basically the very bottom of the range as far as guys I would want to pay that 35, $40 million a friend. Um, what's it called? Salary cap tag hit to not tag hit to. Um, but you know, there's such a low success rate for these second round quarterbacks. So I definitely won't want to be using any of my day two picks on projects. I think I'm just out of that for me. Quarterback is just about getting one of those top 10, top 15 guys. So for QB two, I'd either do what the giants did and take a proven guy who's kind of fizzled out like Tyrod or preferably I try to take those high ups, those upside swings on second contracts for former first round busts. Yeah, and I think that's the way to go. And, you know, some teams have won in the past. <laughs> if, if we go way back in the day to the, the quarterback who was drafted by the Patriots, went on to the Oakland Raiders, I think at that time, maybe it was the Los Angeles Raiders, and won a Super Bowl, Jim Plunkett. I mean, I'm not exactly sure how the Raiders ended up getting Jim Plunkett because I wasn't really around back then. But he was somebody who was labeled a bust, went on, and won two Super Bowls for the Raiders. So it's happened uh, historically, and it's definitely a high upside swing. But again, do not do what the Carolina Panthers did. <laughs> they are they are going to be hurting Dan in this draft with that decision because they don't have a second round pick, and that's just devastating. And it was like a top thirty something pick. I mean, it's one of the first picks in the second round, super value pick. Um, you know, it is what it is. They're going to be aggressive about quarterbacks. In, I, I I said it last year about 14 months ago on this podcast, and I'm standing by it. As long as David Tepper is the owner there, and by the way, hails from my area, New Jersey, David Tepper. As long as he's the owner there, he's going to be taking swings over and over at quarterback, which could benefit the Giants if another one of those swings is at six overall in this draft class because it just pushes down another player um, to the Giants at number seven overall. But we shall see. The next question comes from Anthony Pizzariello. This has to be the most Italian name we've read on the podcast. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's literally how it's spelled. Pizza Riello. So Anthony Pizza Riello 
Great last name. Great. He, says, he says, do you guys think we pick at number five and seven, or is a trade brewing with one of the two picks? So Dan mentioned this before from the Paul Schwartz article in the post. I still think there's a, a good possibility they could trade out of one of those picks, depending on the haul that they would end up receiving from the other team. But at the same time, if you sit there and you get your right tackle, whether that be Iquanu, whether that be Neil, and then you select Sauce Gardner, I'm going to be freaking happy. <laughs> but I, I think they're going to explore. And that's something that I love about this new regime is they're going to explore all the options and they're not going to do what happened in 2018. There's no need to kind of rehash that. So I think uh, they'll definitely explore it. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely taking his comments today, Shane, to New York Post, to Paul Schwartz with the smallest grain of salt you can find. Because if there was a trade brewing, or if he had the idea in his mind of we are going to try to trade out of these picks, he would be telling Schwartz exactly what he did, that we're not planning to trade these picks. We want two good guys. His track record suggests he's not going to trade back, but the same could be said about Dave Gettleman last year. If the value's there, they might go ahead and make a trade. But ultimately, I would bet that there is no trade brewing, and my money is on the Giants make picks at five and seven overall. Shane is a big believer in blue chip guys, I think, and I think he's a big believer in his scouting process. And I think he's just going to find two guys he loves at five, that in the top seven picks of this draft class, especially if one of those first six picks that isn't the Giants goes to a quarterback or potentially, you know, if that, you know, the, the great scenario if, if someone falls in love with one of these receivers and takes one of these receivers, surprisingly, in the top six or something crazy or like, you know, like, I don't know, like Nicobe Dean or something like that. These things aren't probably not going to happen, but if they do, it pushes another potential blue chip down to the Giants. So my guess will be they take, they take a player at five and seven overall. Hey, I'm not going to be mad about that, to be honest. Dude, you know what's going to happen? <laughs> so, like, Kayvon Thibodeau is not going to end up falling. Like, like just like the, it's going to be what we thought months ago. And this pre-draft process was all a bunch of smoke. I'm wondering how much of that is actually going to happen. You know, I don't, I don't fully subscribe to that thought process. But these final two weeks heading up to the draft are a little bit exhausting because you're hearing a lot of stuff and you don't know what to believe. And there's just a ton of smoke out there. Yeah, and most of it is smoke in the end. Like a lot, very few of these smokes lead to fire. If that's even how, does that make any sense? I don't know. Yeah, but, no, I think it does. Yeah. Let's see. Let's get to the next one from our buddy Queens guy Sal, who asked nature versus nurture. Can Daniel Jones become a top 10 quarterback with coaching and scheme, or is he doomed to mediocrity based on his innate ability? It, and he also asked, is there a president? Is there even a president in the NFL, a current quarterback? who has become top 10 and didn't look like top 10 in his first three years based on coaching and scheme. And number two, he says, or, or I'll, I'll answer let, Let's go into that one. Then we'll do the next one. Cause it's not, uh, it's not part of the first question. Yeah. So top 10 is difficult and it's not necessarily a slight on Daniel Jones. It's just because there's so many really good quality quarterbacks in the NFL right now. So it's hard to kind of crack into the top 10 when you have guys like Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Matt Stafford, and Tom Brady still playing. And then you look at some of the young guys like Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, and, and players like that. To get to 10, you're going to really have to significantly take that step up. And as we've said several times in this podcast, I think Daniel Jones can definitely play much better than what we've seen in a new scheme. But I don't know if he's going to be able to, to crack the top 10. And that's mainly because there are just very, very talented quarterbacks all around the NFL. Yeah, I think top 10 is a tough stretch, though I do also agree with Nick that he will look better this year. Even if the offensive line doesn't take as big a step forward as we hope it will, I just think the scheme alone will help Daniel Jones. But there are reasons to be concerned with even just the scheme translating. Like, if you listen to, uh, it was a great conversation with John Schmelk and 
forgot who it was now because this was deeper back in the draft process, but he had someone on. I think it was Greg Cassell. Yeah, Greg Cassell from NFL Films, the guru, the GOAT. He basically said, you know, that Bill's offensive line that Shane built with a lot of late round picks, because that's what they did. They really didn't invest any crazy assets besides Cody Ford on the offensive line uh, during Shane and Bean's time. But he's like, if you really look at the film, that offensive line was a problem for Buffalo, but Josh Allen made it not a problem because Allen can just hang back there in the pocket, hang off his back foot and rip balls into tight windows with crazy velocity. But that's not something Daniel Jones can do, and that's okay. I mean, we knew that was not something he can do coming out of Duke. Very few quarterbacks can do that. Very few quarterbacks have Josh Allen's arm talent or anywhere close. And so if that's not there for Jones, that ability to kind of bail the Giants, bail Dable out of play calls that, eh, they don't really work with the offensive line doing the job the offensive line doing, but with a quarterback who can throw a ball into that window, they all of a sudden look brilliant and he looks like a genius. That may be taken away with Jones as the quarterback. And again, not a knock on Jones, just who he is as a prospect. And as you know, you said yourself in the question, Sal, some of this is innate ability. Daniel Jones has adequate arm talent, but it's not really much better than adequate. He has a good deep ball where I think his arm talent shows up the best. He used to be a little more accurate in the red zone, but that seemed to go away. And, you know, he can make all the throws, but he doesn't really make them with any kind of next level velocity or any kind of thing that shows you, whoa, this guy's fitting the ball into tight windows. Most of his tight window throws come from him really using his eyes to manipulate the safety and to wait for a receiver to get into a throwing window. Those tighter window throws that just aren't really based on anticipation are just not, you know, either see it or you don't. You're either willing to try it as a quarterback or you're not. For the most part, he's just not willing to try those. And for a good reason, because let's be honest, when he has, they've led to tip passes and interceptions and at times just really negative plays for the offense. Something Jason Garrett, the former coach, wanted to kind of coach out of him. So I guess that's a long way of me saying top 10 seems a little bit of a stretch to me, though I do think he can improve within the scheme. Yeah, and I think that's safe to say. And another question from Queens guy, Sal, should we take two corners for Wink in this draft? And another one, I think that's quick. Where are we going to take a running back? Yeah, as far as the corners go, first question, I'm I'm down with it. I'm okay with it. They have a lot of picks. And, you know, a lot of these picks on day four aren't, or I'm sorry, day three, round four and on, aren't always picks like a GM or a defense corner coming in and saying, Let's get the best value right now. This guy shouldn't fall. This guy's the best value. We have him ranked high. Sometimes it's, wow, we think this corner has the traits to potentially project as a much better player than he currently is on our board or he currently is viewed by other teams. And we can draft him in round four, potentially based on our belief in our own coaching and his fit within Wink Martindale's system. We can make him look like a first rounder. And then we hit bigger than we could have hit on like some guy who's sitting around as like, we have him as a top 70 ish player, but he's still around at 105. Well, let's get him. That's great value. Well, they may look at the corner, for example, and be like, and if we can get him into Wink's system and if we can coach the, the traits that he has naturally, he can be a top 30 player for us or a top 25 player for us. So I think that could happen at the corner position for sure. I think that's one of those positions that will be viewed by the Giants scouting staff and Wink as like a position they can find a sleeper, hidden gem breakout type. So I would not be surprised at all if they took two corners. What about you, Nick? 
no, I think that's definitely well within the range of outcomes. And Sauce Gardner could be one of them in the top 10. And then there's plenty of guys down the list, some small school guys like Josh Williams out of Fayetteville State or Gregory Jr. out of Hokeda Baptist. There's guys like Darian Kendrick from Georgia, who was a transfer from Clemson the year before. Martin Emerson, people talk about out of Mississippi State. I haven't quite watched him yet, but I've heard good things. I've heard great things about Marcus Jones, the kid from Houston. He's a little bit undersized, but a feisty cornerback. I think there's a lot of solid cornerbacks that can be added to Wink Martindale's system who can be developed on that round four, round five range. Yeah, for sure. And we'll take a look at some deeper corners later on another podcast as well. Um, finally, where are you now on taking running back? I guess that's because Sal was the one who originally approached the idea of, or approached the idea to us of, look, we're, we're going to most likely keep Barkley. Might as well use him up in his final year of his contract. And then, not draft a running back in this class, instead drafting in the next class, because then we get a full extra year of his cheap rookie contract. That's one full year with a cap hit of 1 million around 1 million, which is a huge benefit to the Giants if they do start to build out a winner. So as far as where am I at now on taking a running back? Well, let's get your take first, Nick. Where are you at now based on all that? I think just how the Giants have brought in Brees Hall, how they brought in Brian Robbins, how they brought in James Cook, I think they're going to look in the third round. They have two third round picks. I think they might investigate there, but if they like other players better, I don't think they're just going to draft the running back because they're going to need one for next year. But I think they're going to definitely seriously entertain it around there. And that's where Brandon Bean, Joe Shane entertained it up in Buffalo in 2019 or 2020 with Devin Singletary and Zach Moss. Yeah, for sure. I think it's definitely possible in that round three range. If they love someone, where am I at? I'm good with waiting this year. I just, the more I look at this class, I'm trying to find like last year, I loved Khalil Herbert. I was like, this guy's going to be an absolute freaking steal. And he ended up falling into round five. That's kind of what I'd rather take out of this class. And I just don't think that's going to happen with James Cook or Damian Beers. And I'm struggling to find other guys that fit the prototype of what I like at running back and what's overall just not a very good class, in my opinion, at all. And I just don't love the idea of drafting into a weak position in a draft class, especially if that position is running back. And so I'm just OK. I don't know what next year's class looks like right now. But I'm perfectly fine with waiting to get that extra year on the rookie deal in a class that could be potentially, I'm not sure, much deeper with a lot more talents that are sitting around in round three and four. I'm like, holy shit, he's the best player on the board by far. Give me him in round three. Or holy shit, he's the best player on the board. Give me him round four. I feel like that could be the case with Pierce and Cook at some point in this draft. But I'm not even certain I'm going to look at either of them in round three or round four and be like, this is such a steal over this corner, or this is such a steal over this receiver or this safety or whatever it may be, this edge, this interior offensive lineman. And so if I don't feel that strongly convicted at a running at, for a running back prospect, I'm okay just defaulting to passing because he's a running back. Yeah, I think that's safe too, to a good way to look at it. Because we don't know what the next year's running back class is. Now, the, on the flip side, you could argue, would you – see, this is where it gets funny because I think it's it's better to have a running back who's not a rookie handle a big, bigger load, and he would be able to sit behind Barkley, be used interchangeably, you know, third down responsibilities or whatever. But then you lose a year off of his contract, to Sal's point. I think that's an interesting way to kind of look at this, though, because if we do – the Giants do draft a running back in this class – they don't have to overuse him, and then he will be more pro-ready when he's going to handle the load next year. And again, like I said a little bit ago, the sacrifice there is a year on the contract. What do you, what do you think about that kind of um, give-and-take situation there? I think that's an excellent point, Nick. I really do. And I think even just hearing it right away, my opinion has changed a little bit. And again, I'm totally open to that at all times, changing my opinion on players, positions, prospects, concepts. And 
you can't expect the reason being you can't expect it happens sometimes like Najee Harris was able to do it. But for the most part, you don't often expect these running backs to be able to come in and carry the main workload in year one, unless you're taking them super high like Najee Harris. And Lord knows we don't want the Giants using their 2023 first round pick on a running back after letting Saquon Barkley hit the open market. That would be like a nightmare somehow repeating itself over and over to Giants fans. And I, I it, some might lose all hope at that point. I know. Uh, <laughs> I, Will from Giants Twitter. Some of you might know him. He's the, the resident Saquon Barkley hater. I think if the Giants let Barkley go in free agency and then drafted a running back like Najee Harris in round one next year, he might he might literally. I, I don't even want to go as far as to say what I think he might do. Let's just leave it at that. But I mean, look, if you're not getting one of those guys, then I don't know if you can expect whoever you take in round three or round four, where we're looking to target running back in the first place. Let's say it's a super deep class next year with a lot of talent and you can get your Kamara in round three, or you can get your Mondre Stevenson in round four or whoever it may be, your David Montgomery. I'm not sure, sure you can expect those guys to come in. Like you said, Nick, and as a rookie be great in pass pro or be trusted in pass pro on passing down or be trusted to carry a heavy workload and not make key fumbles or, or make good decisions in key spots with his route running and with his, you know, his processing as a runner. And so I think you're right. Getting him now gives him an extra year to have more experience and potentially step into a lead role next year if they move on from Barkley. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting either way. And again, if, if the Giants don't draft a running back in this draft, we're not going to be like, what the heck are they doing? We'll acknowledge it and we'll be like, well, you know, they didn't draft the running back, so they better have a plan. But it's definitely not one of those like if they didn't draft the offensive line, like how we reacted last year when they didn't add depth to the offensive line. We were like, you better be damn sure that you're going to develop these young offensive linemen because if you don't, this is going to be a disaster. Lo and behold, it was a disaster. You're damn right it was. Jim Henry asks, hypothetical and a big if, if we take Icky at five and Neil is available at seven, would you double down and move Icky to guard? I know, I know we have other needs, but corner and edge are deep this year. This solidifies the offensive line once and for all. Big if that Neil lasts to seven, but you can also switch those names up if you want to. Yeah, this is a really interesting question by Jim. I really like it because like you already have Andrew Thomas on the roster. You're one blue chip prospect for sure. And again, Xavier McKinney, I think, can potentially get there. Aziz Ojolari, maybe. I like him more as a two. But the locked-in blue chip I feel really good about moving forward on this roster is Andrew Thomas. I don't see him falling back into any of his year one habits. I think he's really a blue. And so you have your one, and then let's say you add two more. You take Icky at five and Neil at seven, or either order there, Neil at five, Icky at seven. Well, now you have three tackles on your roster. But at the same time, as we just went over in the Icky Iguanu uh, draft profile podcast versus Cross, you can check it out from earlier on our feed earlier this week. Both me and Nick almost feel like he can be, and this is not a knock on what he can be as a tackle, but almost feel like he can be an even better guard. I think he can transition right away to guard. I think he's going to be a weapon in the run game as a guard, more so than he would be even as a tackle. Though overall, I still don't. I still think I'd, I'd rather try him out at tackle first. But you get them on the roster. You also give yourself the opportunity there to potentially have a bust in one of those two, right? Let's say, and this has happened before. Sometimes these top seven, top 10 offensive tackle or offensive lineman picks do ultimately become busts for a variety of reasons. So let's say one of these two busts. Well, now you have a fallback option because if one hits, you have your two locked in tackles for next year. You obviously don't want that to happen. And you hope at worst they can be a serviceable guard, which I think they would be at, at the very worst, either of them, but maybe not so much, Neil. I, I'd have to look, I'd have to ask your take on that actually, uh, Nick. But 
I don't hate the idea. I really don't hate the idea because we've been looking for a better offensive line forever. It's so hard to build it out. I know Shane and, and Bean have had some success with late round guys. I know we've even seen trends in recent seasons of a lot of teams having success with kind of just not having that outlier on their offensive line, right? Building their offensive line with later round picks and trades and things that didn't require top five, top 10 draft picks, but, you know, ultimately led to an offensive line that doesn't have a super weak link on there. And I want that too for the Giants, but at the same time, put three blue chips on that offensive line. And I'm starting to feel like, all right, well, this thing's going to happen a lot faster. I don't have to wait as long for it. It's like the Dallas Cowboys. And Neil can play guard. At least he did at the University of Alabama, although I think he's best suited to play tackle. Look, I don't hate the idea, but I don't know if it's the wisest way to allocate your assets. And I know that I know that the Giants need offensive line, but you also got to look at this current class. This is kind of a deep interior offensive line class. There's a lot of guys that I feel like you can get later, like a Dylan Parham out of Memphis, a Cole Strange out of UT Chattanooga, Cam Jurgens out of Nebraska, Luke Fortner out of Kentucky, Ed Ingram out of LSU. I mean, th- th- there's just a lot of players that that I do like. Now, granted, they are not Ikemi Kwano. They're nowhere near what Iquano is, but in taking Iquano, then you're sacrificing on a blue chip defensive type of dude, like a sauce Gardner or a Kayvon Thibodeau. And I think I'd much rather have the right tackle, whether that be Neil or Icky, and then the great defensive asset to help wink Martindale rather than doubling up and then kind of being really strong on the offensive line, which is great if they both hit and then kind of eh, everywhere else. I mean, that's, that's at least where I stand. If they do that, it's going to be interesting. It'll be for great content. We'll, you know, I'll really appreciate the fact that you have two really good offensive linemen added to that pathetic group that we had last year. But I would also be like, there was, there's an opportunity cost that, that you, that you make in, in having that decision. Yeah. I think Nick nails this one here. It's the opportunity cost. So It feels irresponsible, right? It feels a little bit irresponsible, but at the same time, kind of fun to dream about going into the first week one with Andrew Thomas at left tackle, Icky Iguano at left guard, Feliciano holding down center. Maybe, just maybe, Nick Gates makes a miraculous recovery. So let's say Gates at center, Glowinski at right guard, and Evan Neal at right tackle. It feels good to daydream about that. It just feels a bit irresponsible at the same time, considering you had picks five and seven in this class, and there are so many blue chip defenders at positions that they need available to them. Exactly. And I I think that's where I lean, although it would make it, it would be great to go into a season with like the Cowboys 2014 offensive line, which I don't know if they would be that good. They wouldn't be, but there would definitely be the potential to grow into something like that. Yeah, again, I don't know if it would be just immediately that good, but yes, it would at least give that vibe. And just in general, I think it'd be so fun to watch Andrew Thomas and Iki Iguanu, um, you know, operate deuce blocks together and just play together on the same offensive line. It would be a lot of fun. I really think watching Iguanu in space, Iguanu in space is one of the most fun parts of what I saw on film. And I would love to just see him pulling as a guard. Dude, there is a part, and I want Evan Neal because I have a higher grade than Evan Neal. I think Evan Neal is safer. But there yeah. is this little part of me that's like, man, I kind of want a Kwanu just because I know our podcast would be on fire, bro. Oh, my just, God. Bro. Just watching him explode. Oh. <laughs> it would be a lot of fun. He'd be he'd have a lot of fun tape to also then just clip up and put on Twitter. Those would be just like a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, agreed. I, I mean, and again, in this scenario, by that Jim poses, we get them both. We get Neil and Iquanu. So, I mean, how bad could that be overall? I don't know. I, 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 Again, I know it's not responsible, but I just don't hate this idea. I really don't. 
I feel it. I feel it, man. Joe Barton asks two questions. Do you take any trade down from five or seven that doesn't involve the future first? We already kind of touched on that. It would have to be, well, not, I guess, specifically. It would have to be something very, very good if it doesn't involve a future first and have to make sense. And I feel like it also depends on who's available left. Say in, in the scenario where Sauce is gone, Icky's, well, we, the Giants already went, say, uh, tackle at five. So you have a tackle and then Sauce is gone. Thibodeau is gone. And like the only guys on the board that you really are interested in is like Jermaine Johnson, Trayvon Walker, maybe. If it's a huge deal that still gives us future assets, but not a future first, I think you entertain it. But it really all depends on what happened before uh, in the first six bits. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and then diving into his second question, this will be an interesting one. I love these types of questions. So if you could throw yeah. them out there more, everybody. Chime in, jump in, have a little fun with us and ask us some questions about food takes, which I take very seriously, or pop culture, TV, drama, music takes, which I also take very seriously. And this one is, Joe says, I've been rewatching Game of Thrones recently. What's your number one ranked episode? He gives his, which is the season four finale. So do you have yours? If not, Nick, let, let, let's get yours up and let's let's start to consider what your favorite. I'm going to give my favorite episode both pre and post. So pre Game of Thrones for me is before they went off books. Post is once they went off books. Very few to choose from from the post. Uh, post books, um, you know, set of episodes. They just simply fell off as writers, but and just didn't have without the source material. But I do feel like there was one unbelievable episode from the post book section that might be actually my favorite episode of the entire series. Um, and so I want to get into both of those. But Nick, do you have yours ready or should I start off here? Uh, I think you should probably start off, but I will say there's one in season one that had my jaw on the floor that definitely kind of sets up the entire series. And that is the season one finale. I don't want to give anything away, but it involves Ned Stark and it involves just a pure hatred for King Joffrey. Yeah. I mean, look, Nick was able to, uh, first of all, at this point, sorry. I mean, Nick, you've just gave away a ton anyway, so I don't feel as bad. I didn't that say was, anything. I just said it involved. You said a lot there. You said a lot there. You said a whole lot there, but Nick somehow didn't have that spoiled. And I didn't either. The first time I watched that episode, the Baylor, we'll just leave it at that. Um, those who are fans of the show know, every, know what we're about to say. It was the same for me. I was completely stunned. That was what set the show apart. It's like, holy shit, this show has a chance to be the greatest show of all time. That's the first moment I felt that in Baylor in in, in season one, I believe it was episode nine. It might've been the penultimate though. It might've been 10. I can't remember now. Um, but the Baylor with that surprise, you, you're set up the entire time thinking one person's the main character and then they get taken away in season one. It's always amazing. And again, sorry for the spoilers, but no, I'm not because the show's way over. If you hadn't watched it by now, I don't know. You just have to find a better way to, if you really were interested, you should have found some time. I don't, I just don't know what else to say at this point, but it's not my favorite episode of all time, despite it being the most important, but that is episode nine, by the way, season one, I'm going to start by saying my favorite episode of all time was the reigns of Castamere season three, episode nine, because while the purple wedding was spoiled for me, which is also an incredible episode that comes only a few episodes later, which is, it adds to how incredible it is. Someone, one of my friends, shout out George Truscott. This is a lame ass shout out. I'm giving the opposite here. You you ruin you ruin that that. I'm not even going to go as far as spoiling it here. I guess, but you ruin the purple wedding for me. But and just alone in saying purple wedding, I knew something was coming. Like this was post Reigns of Castamere episode. Like anytime somebody says wedding in Game of Thrones, you, your 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 senses go off. So you should have thought about that before saying, "Oh man, the purple wedding's coming." When you read the books ahead of me. But anyway, I'm going to go with the Reigns of Castamere here, Nick. Season three, episode nine, as my first favorite episode on books and that was obviously just the most incredible ending to an episode i've ever seen 
I totally didn't see it coming. I did not have it spoiled for me. And I remember watching with five of my best friends at the time, and it was just pure silence for literally five to 10 minutes. The two people who had read the books were waiting for this moment for us to see it, and they knew it was coming. But there was just nothing to say. It was just five straight minutes of silence. No one had any clue what to say. It was just like, what the hell just happened here? That was an absolute fucking massacre. And that was just incredible. But for my favorite episode of all time, I'm going off. And this is also, you know, post book. So kudos to them for finally doing something good, Benioff and Weiss. And that was The Winds of Winter, season six, episode 10. I mean, I did not see what was coming, what Cersei had planned. The music and that whole opening scene going alongside the music was so intense and incredible. The entire episode doesn't really fall off. Every scene, even from, you know, even from, um, you know, that, all the way to Arya over there. And Arya had had some rough, str- I mean, there was a stretch of episodes with Arya's character that was just really bad TV. And they just had no idea what they were doing. But even Arya has an unbelievable scene there and just an excellent episode all around. And obviously that's not over there in Essos, but it's just an excellent, she comes back. But I don't want to spoil too much here, Nick. But that that's my favorite of all time. Yeah, I think the Battle of the Blackwater and then, um, as you said, the Reigns of Castamere are are definitely up in my top five, but I'm probably forgetting other ones. Like I, I liked some of the later episodes as well. And we've gone back and forth on Twitter on things, but we're not going to get into all of that right now. I think a very underrated, like, well, it's not even underrated. I think, I think the battle of Blackwater is a, was one of those ones where it's just like, I, I can't believe they shot all this and, and made it look this pretty and this cool. Yep. And then one of my favorite lines ever in, in uh game of thrones came and it's is it urgent <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's just a little more context there they're getting ready to fight and Tyrion uh wants his king joffrey at the front line of the battle like any king would any king would be and uh obviously cersei doesn't want doesn't want joffrey out there so he sends uh not yeah hound to be like uh you there's business there's business uh your mother wants you there's business uh with the queen inside and and obviously as nick said our joffrey goes is it urgent <laughs> is it urgent business? Is it urgent? What the fuck could be more urgent than this battle coming to this war that's coming to your doors, Joffrey? What could possibly be more urgent? But of course, Joffrey, being the little bitch that he is, uh, went inside and protected himself. He he had no chance out there. So let's wrap up this first part of the mailbag. This is mailbag part one, then we'll get into round uh, mailbag part two with a question from Neil. And I think it's an interesting question because I think me and you might have slightly different answers, but I'm curious. We'll find out. He says, if Neil and Iquanu go top four, should the Giants take Charles Cross or should they wait until day two? If they do wait until day two, who would you target? So some of these day two tackles I haven't watched yet. So I, I don't want to cop out of this, but I've heard very good things about Abraham Lucas from Washington State. I've watched Nicholas Petit Freer from Ohio State. I, I fear about his strength a little bit, just his play strength. He watched the Michigan game and it was just it was, it was difficult to watch. So I really don't think I'd want him in the second round. I don't think Ryman is going to end up falling that far. Philele, I, I wish he lost some weight, to be honest, because I think he has got heavy feet, but he's an interesting option for a right tackle. I would consider Cross. I would. I think he my my grade between Iquanu and Cross, there, there's a there's a little gap there. But I think it was closer than I originally anticipated, as I said. But if Neil and Iquanu both go off the board, that means who's around? Sauce is probably around. Thibodeau is probably around. So I, I think it makes this conversation much better. And I would feel more comfortable if I if I knew how much I valued an Abraham Lucas and a Daniel Filele and a couple of those other later round guys. But they forego right tackle, man. Like they, they better be very comfortable in some of those dudes. 
Yeah, I think we have similar approaches here, Nick, but I think I'll start by saying this. I'm more inclined to take cross, not only because I probably had a higher valuation than than it seems like consensus, even though I'm coming around to some potential downfalls with the idea of investing in a player like cross, because you have seen some of those types of like quick feet, uh, mirror type tackles that just at times look like they get beat too often on film or don't have as much experience or power as you want in the run game fail. But I think part of why I'm more interested in taking him at five and seven is because I don't like the tackles that I think are going to be there starting at pick 36. If you could tell me Bernard Ryman will be there at 36, no matter what, I'd be willing to go ahead and skip over a guy like Cross. But I don't know much yet about Abraham Lucas, and I don't really love him. I feel like he could be, from just what I've read so far, like a worse version of what Cross offered. And I have to watch him, but some of the guys I like after him are Kennard, Darren Kennard, and Tyler Smith. And I think both of them are better as guards. I think both of them are kicking better inside to the interior. And then you go over what we talked about, like for the last two years on the podcast, when we all kind of like, hooray, Matt Parrott was a great draft pick. He's got a lot of upside and a lot of promise. Well, as we said at the time, both then and then prior to last draft, when we were talking about, well, should the Giants be interested in a tackle like Slater? No, the Giants are saying they're not drafting a tackle. They don't want to draft over a player like Parrott. What we were saying is, if you look at the history, offensive tackle selected in Parrott's range, number 99 overall, don't hit almost ever. And honestly, after you get outside the top 35, top 40, they're not really high. There's not really a high hit rate for the offensive tackle position. There's a much higher hit rate for the interior guys, but for the offensive tackle, it's tough. And you're going for an outlier then. And I don't know if I see many outliers available to them at 36. And then if you're using the next pick at the top of round three, even if a guy like Philele falls because of the concerns you said, or Petit Freer falls. I don't love either of those two players like Zach Tom's getting a lot of buzz now, the Wake Forest kid. And a lot of people really like him. And I want to do a deep, deep dive into him, dive into him. But I can't go into this thing saying, well, you know what? I'll bank everything on Zach Tom being there in round three, even if I end up loving this guy, because that's only one prospect. I know for a fact there's a chance Cross could be really good at the next level. And the same can be said about Neil and Iquanu. This is, to me, very close to a three tackle class, though. I do really like Ryan Ryman, though. We can get that on another podcast. Um, I like his upside a lot converting from tight end, but it's almost like a three tackle class. And even though the top two, I like more than the third, I still want one of these tackles because that's where you get your 10 year, 15 year starters from the top of the draft. That's why I lean, I think towards the Charles cross pick. I think it's uh, like, like we always say on the podcast, an interesting decision. I don't think it's going to play out that way. Luckily, I think the giants are going to have their pick of at least two of the tackles, maybe one go before him. And I think you're also right, Dan, on just some of those late later round guys. Like I haven't evaluated Tyler Smith yet, but I'm just starting to get into sauce Gardner's film and Tulsa played Cincinnati this past year. And there was this one play in the third quarter where Tyler Smith takes number 90 on Cincinnati and just like lifts him up and just drops him. <laughs> and number 90 is a defensive lineman. Like Tyler Smith is, is interesting, but I just don't think he's a going to be a right tackle because he has no idea what the heck he's doing with his hands. And even on that play, he's tonging. He's going, and what I mean by tonging is, you know, when you're at a hotel and you, and you have the ice bucket in front of you and they give you the, the tongs, you grab the ice. That's what, like what tonging is. You're basically, you're not getting your hands inside. You're not fitting your hands inside. You're going around and kind of hugging the person. The strength and the physical nature of Tyler Smith, from what I've seen, the little bit I've seen, is very, very alluring. But that, those are going to be flags. It's the same thing with Trevor Penning. Everyone's talking about Trevor Penning. Man, I, I am very, I have my reservations about Trevor Penning. I mean, like I said, I get it. But like, I would not be shocked if that guy is just flagged, 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 flagged once he gets to the NFL and he doesn't truly adapt. But he has a really good work ethic, reportedly, which is going to work in his favor. But he definitely needs that work ethic because he needs a lot of work. 
Yeah, I'm out on Treader Benning too, at least at his projected range right now. That would be like Giants trade back to 15 or 17 or whatever. Some people are saying, oh, they can still get Trevor Penning. Eh, I don't really know if I want Trevor Penning at 15 or 30, 17. Like if Trevor Penning wasn't getting all this hype and they were there at 36, I would entertain it. But then again, you, you're like Bobby Johnson, bro. Like get to work. <laughs> like yeah, you're get to work and, and hopefully this will work better, I guess, at the next level. Like if you can't stop holding – at the at the level that he was playing at, like, what's to say? What's the idea in your head that that gonna be able to be coachable right away? I mean, over time it could be coachable. I'm sure you could talk to NFL coaches and they'll give me a better idea here, Nick. Or you may have your own strong opinion about this, but that's a big jump going from the level of play he's currently playing at, where he's holding all the time, to the NFL and just assuming, well, we'll coach it out of him early. I know it's it's that's where my concern is with him, and that's why I want. One of these top three tackles, preferably Evan Neal. But if it's Icky, that's awesome too. And then if it is Charles Cross, fine. I think one of my hot takes might end up being just Ryman over Penning. From what I've seen so far, I like Ryman more. I know he's older, but I I, I like his feet more. And I just think overall he, he might end up being a better tackle. Yeah, his feet are definitely more crisp. He's definitely more refined than Trevor Penning. And I mean, he didn't play at a huge program either. Right. But his tape against LSU and the big schools that he did play were pretty damn impressive. And this is somebody who's new to the position. He was a tight end after exactly. serving the Austrian army. That's the key to me. Like, I love that. Like, I know some people have used that as a knock because it's an old, he's an older age prospect. But I'm like, this guy could just be scratching the surface of what he's capable at of the offense tackle position. He went from not playing much, you know, trying to learn the game in all, as an Austrian, coming from, like you said, the Austrian army, converting to tight end, and then saying, you know what, I can be an even better tackle, and then showing some of that, like you said, in that tape against LSU, and just overall his whole body of work at Central Michigan last year was pretty impressive. I also think, generally speaking, now this could be wrong, I think the level of competition is a little higher at Central Michigan than it is at UNI, and then and obviously that can be debated. No, I don't really think that's really debatable. I think Central Michigan definitely has higher competition than UNI. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, again, the FCS competition level, it's tough. It's tough to gauge these guys, but yeah, that's kind of, I'm, I'm not feeling it at tackle after those first, you know, after really f- those first three plus Ryman for me there, I'll have to look into Lucas. And I think we both probably have to do that. And I want to look into Tom because some people really like him as a value. Like yeah. And you may already like him. We could talk about that another, at another point, maybe. Um, but you know, even so if there's only one or two of those guys in each of those second and third rounds, it's it's when you don't have that dearth of guys you like at one position, you're taking a chance because those guys could be loved by some GM and then they take them earlier and then it's like, well, we have nothing left to choose from here that we want. Yeah, um, no, and then you end up in a really bad situation. And I think we're going to talk about Tom on the next podcast, so I'll save I'll save that then because I, I'm reading through some of the questions and, and there's there's a couple Zach Toms in here. All right, well, as usual, the mailbag went a little longer than we promised. Usually try to keep these 45 minutes, but it's okay. We have a lot more questions. We're going to get to them. Mailbag part two coming your way next. That'll probably be dropping a day from now. If you're watching, if you're listening to this now, thank you again to everybody tuning into the big blue banter podcast. We really appreciate it. If you want to help us grow, there's only one thing we'll ever ask. Go over to your iTunes, subscribe to our podcast. Make sure you're automatically downloading our podcast. Even if you want to delete it after, just make sure you download. That's the key for us. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Put a question there. We'll answer it. Same goes for Spotify. Follow, download. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week or weekend, depending on when you decide to listen to this. And we'll talk to you soon.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.